Welcome back to the Transforming Cities podcast. Each episode, we highlight the ideas around rethinking the way cities are being built. We discuss the roles of planning, design, technology, and other fields that contribute to improving the urban experience. Hey everyone, this is your host, Chris Arnold. And on this episode, we're speaking with Emily Silverman, Program Manager at the Denver Smart City Initiative. We are working on a system where if she gets out of my hand and runs back into the street, the infrastructure can actually keep the light green for her. It could even communicate to the cars saying that there's somebody who is likely small who's still in the intersection. Emily received a Master of Urban Planning and a Master of Urban Design from CU Boulder before eventually finding her way to the Colorado Department of Transportation and then to the city of Denver as a transportation planner. After almost six years at the city, Emily transitioned two years ago to her current role deploying Denver's Smart City program. Underneath this umbrella, she builds cross-functional teams, seeming connected, innovative IoT technology and partnerships to provide an interactive, efficient, and safe environment in the physical world. Let's jump right in. Emily, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I want to first begin by rolling back the clock a bit. You started at Washington University in St. Louis. You have an undergrad in comparative arts. You have a couple minors in Italian and business. So tell me about the path that brought you into the Denver Smart City program today. Yeah, so I think my whole philosophy with life is to have passion and bring that passion to whatever I do. So my first job is a ride operator at Elidge Gardens in Kittyland. You know, I tried to be the best ride operator that I could be. And even when I, I've had so many interests, but really bringing passion to whether it's anthropology or my various classes has really allowed me to grow as I'm able to grow in my career and then contribute back to the community. In particular, my interest in comparative arts, which is art, art history, Italian, and comparative literature— is not typically the background where I find myself today in technology services. But what I think it really adds to is this idea of people taking information in all different kinds of ways. And that is only accelerated with technology and how we use it, Uh, whether we're walking, um, whether we're seeing or listening, uh, whether we're with people or alone. And comparative arts is this idea that you have to be mindful of the end user Mm -hmm. and do human-centered design in what we do Because everybody takes things out differently, takes out different outcomes, Mm -hmm. um, and they want, we need to meet people where they are. And so I think that that progression with working at the Boys and Girls Club and then getting degrees in planning and urban design Mm. have allowed me to bring that experience to technology and smart cities. So as a young person growing up, Mm-hmm. Getting into college, why were you drawn to those fields? You know, was it was it something in your childhood that made you want to dive deeper, or kind of where did that all begin for you? Well, I have always enjoyed working with things, being very tactile. So I enjoyed all forms of art. Although I always say in the arts and crafts, maybe I'm a little bit more on the crafty <laughs> side. I like the accessibility of crafts, and my interest actually was in art and in medicine. And so as I started really looking at medicine and the systems of the body, I started then looking at the systems of cities. Mm. And to me, what has always been a thread through all the various careers and interests that I've had 
is this interstitial space, the space between things. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that I really did in my fine art as part of my degree was the idea of changing negative space into positive space. So the Japanese have a term called ma, which is really a more positive view of the negative space. And that's really what drew me to transportation and the built environment, because I think buildings are fascinating and important. It's really where we spend time alone and in groups. Mm. But the places where we all meet together, whether we're rich or poor, whether we are running or walking or we have to use other devices to help us, are the streets and the spaces in between. And I think that's where the most interesting things happen and where the role of cities and those who work for cities really can help all of our residents get to where they need to go and create spaces and invite people to fully participate in the city. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like those comparative pieces, the reductive nature of negative space, which is actually an additive component to government and city spaces and where people congregate, it sounds like those were bits and pieces that drew you to this quote-unquote smart city space, which we'll talk about in a, in a minute here. Would you say that's true? Is there anything else that kind of led you to government slash smart cities slash that space between kind of A and B? Yeah, so I think even in how I think about these spaces, a lot of people see the world, I think, in black and white. Yeah, It's really important to, when we think about even the anthropological meaning behind a reason uh, why we separate things to find our groups. I've always seen the gray in things, and mm-hmm. it's that idea that there's a range. And that really informs how I think about our public spaces because they are public and private. The technology behind it is a combination of the public and the private. And really, who are we trying to positively affect? It's the residents. It's those who are coming into Denver. It's also those who have lived in Denver for generations. So to me, those ties and being more community-minded through my career have really led me to where I am today. Yeah. And the notion of a smart city, which I want to dive into now, is something that we've discussed in the past a fair amount. Defining that phrase, smart city, tends to fall all over the map. And it's kind of funny that you just said you you like the gray area more than the black and white necessarily. And I think that's probably a perfect fit for working at the smart city here in Denver, smart city program. I want to know from you, Emily Silverman, what is your definition of a smart city? Yeah, so I think that for me, when we boil it down... There's so many outcomes that we can focus on. I think that the most important thing that we can really work on today is using data to make our city better, which is really around improving outcomes with transportation, health, and equity. Mm-hmm. And when when someone takes a step back and asks you, that sounds great, but what is that? Is that streetlights? Is that sensors on light poles, you know, how do you tend to answer those questions that kind of get a little bit into the weeds once you've started out with that kind of platform to Mm -hmm. to speak to it? Well, I think I read somewhere that over half of the households will have a device in their home very soon. Mm. And when we think about the important role of the private sector in doing that and making it more convenient for people to get their goods and services Mm. in a way that's efficient for them, 
I see the role of the city is building a platform to enable the benefit of technology to the greatest number of people. When you think about the digital divide and this idea that the other households are those who maybe don't even have internet in the home. And when we talk to a focus group of high school students of 11 children who live in an area that's traditionally underserved, all of them wanted to go to college, but only two of them had internet in their home. Mm. And all of them thought that they were going to do handwritten applications. You can't even do handwritten applications anymore. So how do we bring together partners, public and private, Denver Public Schools, and really think about how do we provide the necessary connections for them and the children and their families to be able to go on the ladders of opportunity to get the jobs that they want and be able to have the lives that they want and not somewhere else, have it in Denver. It really sounds like, you know, this notion of Internet of Things, it sounds like you are really drawing from all corners of what that could be. You know, it can be a device in the home that potentially connects with services that the city will provide that potentially informs city and policy decisions. Is that kind of the, you know, version 2.0, let's call it, of Internet of Things that you see being a big component of smart cities? I do. I think about it as creating a system that is flexible, interoperable, that uses other people's intelligence through open source and open platforms to really embrace new innovation and technology, whether that's public or private. So my son goes to school in downtown in Denver, and we have to cross 19th and Broadway, which is a very heavily trafficked intersection. I have to walk across the street and hold my four-year-old's hand as we're going across the street. We are working on a system where if she gets out of my hand and runs back into the street, the infrastructure can actually keep the light green for her. It could even communicate to the cars saying that there's somebody who is likely small who's still in the intersection. To me, I'm galvanized around life and safety innovations that we can do. The scenario that I just discussed is not the responsibility of the city alone. We own the infrastructure and are working on creating that interoperable system. Mm -hmm. But the cars and the manufacturers are really rapidly working on the technology for connected and autonomous vehicles. And so we're helping create that interoperable system to facilitate that communication so that those warnings could go into their cars. And I think that that, to me, is just one example that everybody at some point is getting out of their car yeah, and walking to where they need to go, and so it benefits everybody. Yeah, that's interesting. I I'm, I mean, I'm a cyclist. You cycled your way uh, to this podcast today, and so that just makes me think of all of the the bike lane networks as well and and how— you know, I think we're we're one foot in the safety there, but we're not two feet in kind of the safety lines of of bike lanes. And it it just has my mind racing as far as how could we make those bike lanes safer with smart devices that can tell a vehicle in the future, hey, you can't you can't pull over here because there's a cyclist, you know, in your blind spotter. Whatever those metrics might be in the future, that's really intriguing to hear that small child in a walkway cyclists in a bike lane, it sounds like that could actually be extrapolated quite infinitely into all these unique safety situations to keep people from being injured. 
Right. A current experiment that we have as part of our living lab is actually with connected bicyclists. I know that sometimes I am waiting at a signal for a long time, and then I think, do I just keep on waiting, or do I have to get off of my bike and go push the pedestrian button and then come back on my bike? We actually are working on an experiment to be able to detect when the bicyclist is in the bike lane and automatically detect that presence so that the light can start its cycle. Mm. And I think that this is really important because the value proposition of getting more people on bikes, which is one of the mayor's goals with the mobility action plan, if we think about that we need more people biking, walking, and using transit to decrease congestion, and but we need to make sure it's a safe environment, this kind of technology will allow those who bike to get to their destinations faster and to have that communication with the vehicles that are also sharing the space. Yeah. So kind of pulling back the lens a bit on the whole notion of smart cities, and we've talked about this, we we have a pretty big example happening right now up in Toronto. It's the Keyside Project. And for those listeners who aren't familiar It's a Google-backed company uh, called Sidewalk Labs, and they're working with Waterfront Toronto. Uh, They've invested, I heard, upwards of $50 million into the R&D of this land. And that was kind of some news that came out earlier this year. And and then just recently, we heard that it's actually going to be peeled back a little bit to a smaller, specific, roughly 12-acre space to really kind of design and plan what this smart city of the future would look like. In my research and kind of following the project, I mean, they're thinking sustainability, um, climate positive actions, quality of life, affordable housing, safety, all of those things. And yet it still needs to be run through the city and the city kind of has final approval, uh, the city of Toronto. And my question around that example is, do we need that level of investment from a large corporation to come in and sort of carry the weight and the burden of actually ever making anything happen with smart cities? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think one of our core tenets about using open source is so that we can learn from others and they can learn from us. When one of our members of our smart city team, Michael Ogletree, who works on air quality sensors, was asked a question from a very small city, how does this benefit me? There's a certain economies of scale that we can do when we work city to city. So maybe the city and county of Denver eventually has 200 hyper-localized real-time air quality sensors, but we've worked on the interfaces and the dashboards and how to communicate that decision efficiently and clearly back to the residents and the nurses, the students, families, and everybody, especially those who are negatively affected by bad air quality, such as those with asthma, Adding 3, 10, 50 sensors as part of the system, they can learn so much so they don't have to have kind of that R&D that we're trying to do. And it's not just us. There's other cities that are really leading the way, such as New York and Tampa and Wyoming with connected vehicles. You have Columbus, who won the USDOT Smart Cities Challenge, so that wasn't private. That was funding. Actually, there was matches from private funding. But public funding as well went into that. 
And then also other cities that sometimes are equated with Denver in terms of an influx of people, numerous creative people, and also have some of the same challenges around congestion and safety, mobility, and health, such as Austin and Portland. So we can all learn from each other. Specifically to Denver, we were spurned on by a few things. One is our culture of innovation that we have with Peak Academy, which Mayor Michael Hancock had put together a number of years ago, which really empowers staff at every level to improve city services to benefit the residents who need them the most. We also did receive a $6 million grant through a congestion mitigation grant. It's called ATCMTD. I won't even go into details of the acronym, but it's really around connected pedestrians, connected freight, and connected fleet. And we have a $6 million match. So that was a really great catalyst. So I always think with cities, just think of the catalyst that you can do. We also received internally some funding, about $1.4 million, to really work on building the base infrastructure. And so we've been working on our own brain, the enterprise data management system, and we're doing it in an agile methodology. So we're slowly building it. So I think about For cities, we need to know what our assets are and what we can do and how do we foundationally do small steps so that we can take in any innovation and really then fully engage our private partners. I believe that helps us transition from transactional relationships, which are kind of typical public and private relationships, to collaborative. Yeah. I really like the way that you talk about that. When you know we met up recently, we were kind of talking about you know, doing this podcast and and smart Mm -hmm. city topics in general. But I really like the way that you break down the notion that there's more than one entity or two entities, or it's not necessarily from X to Y. There are so many little layers and small communications and partnerships, public and private, that need to take place in order for anything at this 50K level of smart city to actually happen. Nothing happens at that level unless kind of all of these smaller units tend to connect and make progress together. We are here in Denver, beautiful downtown Denver. Mm -hmm. And I want to know, you know, Denver specific, have you, speaking to those other cities, have you modeled any of the work that you're doing on any other cities specifically that are worth noting? Yes, we have been working and communicating with Columbus, who is also building an enterprise data management system, a lot of the finalists, the seven finalists of the USDOT Smart Cities Challenge, did think about this idea of a system of systems. Traditionally, the way that we share information is via fiber. And so it's really done at the the communication is, is really happening underground. But as we know, especially those of us in Denver, all the construction that's going on, it's hard to sometimes maintain those systems. So what we are trying to do is to learn how do we communicate better with these other cities, not just the ones I mentioned around the country, but how do we communicate better with Aurora, Lakewood, with our regional Department of Transportation. And that's that system of systems conversation that we have. We're really inspired right now by some projects that are going on around the country, including Austin as a great pilot with Chariot for first mile, last mile connections. Mm -hmm. And also, they are working on dynamic routing with their emergency vehicles so that we can utilize the best technology. And Portland is really being thoughtful in terms of their community engagement strategy. 
one thing that I think about with my background in urban design and in this idea of how people take things in is adding technology component to the built environment is very important for us to realize the efficiencies and to positively affect the outcomes of uh, mobility and health and equity. But it's very difficult to explain Mm -hmm. and understand. I would say even four years ago, when I was working with a fellowship program, one of the first questions I wrote down is, learn how the internet works. (laughs) Because we all know that we want fast internet, but we don't understand it. And so I think coming up with innovative ways of community engagement and really shortening the cycle between understanding what our residents' problems are and working on solutions will be the best benefit to everyone in the smart city space. Yeah. I have a note here, kind of an open question, but I think the answer is yes, and that is, are smart cities an inevitable sum of its parts situation? And I think the answer is absolutely Yes, there are many players, many components to connect to make things happen. In the past, you've talked about bridging the gaps and thinking of things in terms of public and private. Tell me more about that and and specifically around the idea of laying fiber, laying the connection. What happens after that point? What are the connections that can be made from there? And I know that that's a difficult thing to explain, like you said, but like, where would you start with that conversation? Yeah, I think that... The idea of more devices out in the world is inevitable. I would say, though, the ability for them to work together is not a foregone conclusion, that we all need to be more thoughtful in how we put things together. I would say almost every device usually comes with a software package that comes with a platform that comes with a way to store the data. If you imagine all the innovation in each item having its own system, it becomes much more difficult to think of it as a system of systems. The example that I think that we can realize if we work together, and that's why we are so excited about our enterprise data management system, is we can create this system of systems so that our Department of Transportation or other cities, even those adjacent to us, or the Portland's, Austin's, New York, Wyoming's of the country, We can share data and share insights together. The example that I gave about walking with my daughter Solia across the street, that actually to facilitate those interactions requires multiple systems that are a computer in the car that is a privately done computer, right? Some of them will be aftermarket. Some are being integrated into that infotainment that newer cars have. I don't have a newer car, but I've seen them. Then there's also kind of this radio that's on the masthead of the signal, for example. And this is the specific ecosystem that we're working on. That is put together by a company. And there is different language that each of those speak. The federal government is actually worked on a, it's called a Vita iHub, that we like to call the Rosetta Stone, Hmm. that actually translates the two different languages together. And then the last part when you're thinking about walking across the street and how that communication is some form of detection. So some way to be able to know that my daughter is in the intersection. And for city and county of Denver, we have over 1,300 signals. Our strength is in making our signals smart. Yeah, right right there, we're talking about government at the highest levels, private corporations, 
city government, local partners, and, 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 and that is just one example of how a smart city could work. That's exactly right. We already have great and talented staff, and one of the tenets of 18F, which is a federal organization, is that we need to grow our talent also within the cities ourselves. And Jim Fox, who runs our traffic management center, can go out and and can observe when there's a, an accident or a crash on I-25 or um, if there's construction, let's say, on Santa Fe. And he is able to make some changes to the signal timing to make sure that people get to where they need to go. Mm. In our, real time. In real time. Yeah. Our EDM will be able to, our enterprise data management system, will be able to help him and alert him to things. That's that machine learning component. But it's not about machines doing the work. It's about augmenting the amazing staff that we have that make our residents' lives better, that get them to where they need to be. So residents specifically, I'm I'm a member of the general public. I don't work in the mayor's office. You know, I don't work in the smart cities department. Um, how am I to be informed of, you know, some of the cool things you're talking about here? I mean, I, I am a little bit of a pessimist when it comes to smart cities or maybe a realist where I, I really want to dig into what that, what does that actually mean? And that's one of the reasons what that sparked our conversation to begin with. Smart cities, you know, that sounds great. That's a great buzzword, but really like what are the meat and potatoes that are making that up? And I think you do a really great job of explaining that. Um, but as a member of, you know, Denver City, where do I go to find out more information? How can I educate myself on, on what is potentially coming and maybe even be a part of that conversation? It's a great question. I think uh, strength of the cities is really and will be on how the residents are engaged. A place that I want to kind of would love people to check out is we actually have a website for that. So it's denvergov.org slash Denver Smart City. And we also have a Twitter feed for City of Denver and a Facebook page. We have on that Denver Smart City website two different paths because we really embrace this idea of partnerships. Mm. So if you're a vendor, potential partner, kind of a company, we actually have you fill out a form. So it's not just doing cold calls to various departments. <laughs> We also have a form as a resident that we would definitely would love people to fill out so that as we have public engagements, we also have workshops we can let you know. We've been doing some innovative things with Photo Voice. And on our website, you know, there's going to be so many different projects that we will have there. And then we want to create the spaces to be able to have a good conversation of what this means. Mm. That's great information. And I think that that's a huge opportunity for local residents to educate themselves and learn more about what's coming and kind of what's what's happening. And that's sort of where I want to wrap up today and get a better sense of what's happening now and maybe even like looking ahead as far as smart cities go and Denver specifically. So here we are, Denver. It's late 2018. We're, we're talking about buses that run themselves. We're talking about the Panasonic campus um, off of Pena Boulevard. If you come to the airport or leave the airport in Denver, you'll see that kind of right off of Pena Boulevard there. Intelligent city light poles, sensors. We've talked about quite a few things today, but what's next? You know, like we have these test units here. We have something happening there. It seems like we have a few pockets of innovation occurring, 
but maybe they're not necessarily talking to each other yet. And so what do you think happens from this point forward? The concept of smart cities is a relatively new concept. And I think that you hit the nail on the head. It's an emerging industry that has a lot of experiments going on. I think the very notion of it has allowed this idea of an entrepreneurial mindset to really be integrated into city thinking. There's a great graph that I saw that where innovation has a sharp kind of curve upward, right? And this idea, I was even heard a futurist talk about water being a shortage, that often we go from a lack to too many of something. And this idea that water is a shortage globally, but with innovation very quickly in economies of scale with desalination and other things, there may be the next thing that is a problem. Governments tend to work pretty slowly. So I think with our agile approach, we are really building this foundation to figure out what we want to scale. There are so many great ideas out there, and we want to do the things that will provide the most benefit. So for example, we are currently doing experiments around crosswalk violations. So that's when a car drives in the crosswalk and stops. We need to know that information because that's the pedestrian's kind of sacred space. And we can't just build bridges over every road. We have to think differently. So there is an opportunity to think about how do we visualize that information and then be able to work with the private company to maybe build more dynamic systems for yellows, reds, and greens so that we can improve travel time, but also reduce the number of crosswalk violations. And crosswalk violations are the single biggest indicator of red light running and T-bone crashes, which are our most deadly crashes. And so we're really inspired by Mayor Hancock's vision of Vision Zero with zero deaths. And so I believe that we will find the right tools and then be able to scale those up in the next few years and hopefully really realize that reduction in crashes and in deaths. On a personal level, what is your hope, goal, dreams for the city, smart city of the future? What what does that look like? You know, to me, the key component is an equitable city. I worked at the Boys and Girls Club in the Montbello area, which is um, actually relatively close to that Panasonic campus that you were saying. And you think about all of the great work that Panasonic is doing and an autonomous electric shuttle that is really looking at first mile, last mile connections. That is not happening in Montbello. Autonomous vehicles and connected vehicles will be great for drivers, but I want to make sure that we're thinking about those veterans and young people, especially those like this young man, Khalil, who I used to work with, who had some sight impairments at the Boys and Girls Club. And so I want to make sure that the technology that we put out in the field really protects and enhances the lives of those, whether they're young or they're old. I feel like if we can design uh, things for eight-year-olds and 80-year-olds, then hopefully it'll work for everyone in between. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Emily, as we wrap up here, I want to ask you one final question, and that is, who else should we be paying attention to? You know, we've talked about quite a few things today, but I'm sure that you have a couple ideas and uh, 
thoughts rolling around your head as to who we should be looking towards for our own inspiration or other projects to look into that might be of, of interest on the smart cities topic? So yeah, I think we're very fortunate in Denver to have great leadership. So internal to the city, just our executive steering committee and then the other projects that they're working on, such as in public works, uh, great items around the mobility action plan and vision zero, because we could put all the great technology in the field, but if we need to have good sidewalks and good infrastructure to support our regional transportation district. In addition, we have Colorado Smart Cities Alliance, which has 16 cities and private entities trying to work together. And I had mentioned before Portland and Austin in particular because some of their pilots were working on very closely. So the idea is, is that we don't have to have our own pilots in that space, but we can learn from them. So I think that if you check out PDX, which is Portland's, and then Austin's Department of Transportation, their websites have lots of great information. And really, that's what is becoming a smart city, is that we don't have to do things individually. We can work together, which ultimately saves time, saves money, that allows us to devote resources to the people who need our services the most. Emily, thank you again for joining us today. Um, hit me with that web address one more time for Denver Smart Cities. So denvergov.org slash denversmartcity. And we can also find you on Facebook, is that right? Yes, LinkedIn is really where I spend more time. LinkedIn, but there Facebook. is City and County of Denver. This definitely has a LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Okay, great. Emily, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at AuthenticFF.com slash Transforming Cities, or you can subscribe through your favorite outlets, including SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Thanks for joining us.